After a Dhamma talk on the Four Noble Truths, it always makes sense to talk about compassion because compassion is what helps us to actually come close to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and really let it sink into our hearts in a way that we can kind of unfold and um, with intelligence and heart wisdom. Not so long ago, I was reading one of the journals that I had been writing when I was much younger, and Manindra was around. And uh, the question I had written in this journal is, Manindraji, what is the reason for living? And how he answered me is like this, very simply. He said, the reason for living is to develop wisdom and compassion. This is the reason for living. And so at that time, being very young, you know, just taking in what he's saying and um, actually experimenting in my life to see if that's true or not, I came to live into the actual understanding of how true that is. And I think as we mature in our life and indeed in our spiritual practice, we see how more and more true that simple statement is. The reason for living is to develop compassion and wisdom. It is said that there are two great wings of the Dhamma, or the Dharma, and those two wings are compassion and wisdom. And if those two wings aren't in balance and serving each other, uh, then this great bird of the Dharma of our hearts, the truth of our own hearts, really doesn't fly. It's not, it doesn't have that balance to fly. There's um, a saying by Sri Nisargadatta, this wise cigarette vendor of India that many of us have read about. And that is, he says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Love tells me I'm everything. That's that metta where we develop the connection with ourselves more and more deeply, with others more and more deeply. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. The understanding that our insight practice gives us to see the ephemeral, uh, impermanent, empty nature of all of life. And yet that holds the connection that those two actually can come together, that compassion and wisdom can be connected, that when they're in balance, then our life flows. So compassion, many ways to describe it, to experience it, but of course, these few words I've put together as a beginning to help us point to that. Compassion is to develop tenderness and care, to open to and face what we've been born into, not just in terms of our family, our community, our social structure, but we've been born into this world of what Steve um, brought out in the Four Noble Truths last night, this world of suffering, this mix of happiness and unhappiness in this level of existence. And how are we to open to 
not just our family suffering, our personal suffering, but the fact of suffering itself, the universal fact of suffering. How can we face that with a kind of tenderness, with a kind of openness, a kind of ability to not push it away, but to turn to it and to be able to say, yes, this is how it is too. This allows us to see more clearly the nature of life. If we're not so afraid of what's painful in our own hearts, in our own bodies, or outside of ourselves, then we can see, then we can come close. And that opening, that coming close, serves us, provides us, bit by bit, with this wisdom that's liberating The Buddha's whole teaching began with that statement of the truth of life. There is the truth of suffering. Because, as we have all seen, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that we spend a lot of our time, even though, you know, we're trying to help the world, we can spend a lot of our time avoiding what's painful, closing down, turning away, running away. And when it's really, really difficult, striking out, striking out towards the suffering because it's so painful to take. During the Buddhist time, there was that basic formula for medical assessments, and this is what he used as his formula for the Four Noble Truths, to acknowledge that there is a disease because without that first step, without that acknowledgement, we don't get anywhere. So are we taking that first step, that acknowledgement, Yes, there is this suffering. And not just personally, which we get so caught up in. This suffering is, just turns out to be so personal. We just get so wrapped up in what's happening to me. But we see it on a global level. We see it as universal. Can we open to that? The second part of that medical assessment formula is the cause, and the third part is the cure. That if we can see the cause, perhaps we can see to the cure. That there is a cause, that there can be an end, an extinction to suffering. And the fourth part has to do with the medication. But it takes, you know, taking it. The Buddha offered the medicine, but it really takes actually taking it ourselves and and letting it work on us in life. So the Buddha was asking us, let's be intelligent about it. Can we be really intelligent about it, face it, not avoid it, not deny it, not distract ourselves from it, but actually to face it? And much of our practice has to do with this, opening to this, both our insight practice of vipassana and all of the Brahma-vihara practices, metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, all of those practices help us to actually open to the Four Noble Truths. This isn't something that we're born into doing. It takes a lot of training. In our culture, there's a lot of covering up, of course, of what is not beautiful. We, We see it everywhere. When Upandita first came here, 
I heard, uh, actually I read in an interview that he said something like, you know, from afar, in Asian countries, I'm, I'm from the Philippines and was born there and did a large part of my maturing there. Um, we look upon Western countries, I kind of have one foot in the West and one foot in the East for myself, but when Asian people look upon Western countries, there's so much glitter and it seems that there's so much strength. But when people come to retreat, it just seems like there's a very small or thin veneer. And underneath that, there's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of inability to face what's difficult because there's just so much opportunity here to distract ourselves. It's what many of you and many of us who have been to Asian countries can appreciate about being in those countries. It's so raw. The beauty is in its rawness that you you just have to face it all, just like that. So in the stillness, in the silence, in the way that we have a greater ability for non-distraction here, all or most of our energy can go inwardly, can go into facing what we're so used to distracting ourselves with. Uh, We can face what's painful. We can face what's unfolding, the karmic knots that unfold, that we see this one strand, this other strand, or these layers upon layers that we've been kind of pushing down there, not facing somehow in the busyness of our lives. It's quite challenging and insurmountable, of course, at times. And at worst, it seems impossible. But it is possible. We can muster up enough mindfulness, enough compassion, enough ability to come close to what's happening to actually see more deeply than we ever have before. The development of compassion is essential. It's the ingredient that we need to pay attention with. It, it needs to support mindfulness at all times, really. Otherwise, we really can't get through this layer of delusion, of ignorance. Ignorance being not knowing or knowing wrongly. So without compassion as one wing, the wisdom isn't really flying. It's not really authentic. It's more in the head and not in the heart. It's said that compassion is the quivering of the heart. That's how it's described in the text and by beings or when we really feel it. It's a quivering of the heart that says, this heart is awake. And some of us may feel it when we're doing the metta practice or even just doing the insight practice, the mindfulness practice. We feel things waking up, things moving that we've never felt before. And this is good. It takes more and more steadiness of mind, more and more the courage of compassion to be able to face it. Sometimes compassion is described as the courageous heart. Trungpa Rinpoche said, compassion is a force that supports us in experiencing reality with a noble heart. A force that supports us in experiencing reality with a noble heart. 
Sometimes when it's really, really hard, it takes a fierceness. Some of you have described to me how some of the teachers that you have had or some of the uh, spiritual friends that you have had have had to kind of come forth with a very fierce compassion and not making any bones about it and saying, that's enough. That's enough. Somebody said to me today that one of her teachers said, I think you're addicted to suffering or something like that, which is sometimes what somebody, someone has to tell us. You know, maybe we feel safe because suffering has been with us all of our life and that's what is the only thing that, you know, is the boundaries of our heart. And it takes compassion to really be able to face that. Times when it's been really difficult for me, as it has been for, I'm sure, each one of you in your own way, having to face my own teacher and wanting him to be fiercely compassionate and just pointing out the place where I'm stuck because I just don't want to waste my time anymore. I'm just too grown up to waste my time to be coddled anymore, to be handheld anymore. So why is compassion sometimes called the noble heart? It's noble because we're able to face the first noble truth of suffering. This is why. Without flinching, with that balance, the balance of compassion and wisdom, to get close enough, unflinchingly close, where we can see something in a different way, not the same old way. Maybe it's different and then it's fearful, but it's good when it's different. It's sort of circuit-breaking. We're not just in our holding patterns, that maybe our holding patterns have been painful, but they're familiar. But we're willing to go to unfamiliar ground and see places where it's slippery, it's new. We're going into the unknown. This is good, but it takes a lot of fierce compassion in our own hearts to be able to do that. It's said that compassion is born out of a simple care of metta, and we know that to be true. Metta is a way that we care for the welfare of ourselves and others. And when you turn that metta and turn it directly towards what's painful, then it becomes compassion. It becomes more um, exacting. This metta turned to suffering is now compassion. It's still metta, caring, but it's caring in a, in a way that might need a little more energy, might need a little more courage to be with what's going on. Of all the Brahma-viharas, the Brahma-viharas are, uh, that's a word in Pali that means divine abodes. Abodes, not any place else but in our hearts. And they're divine because they're, they're just beyond the ordinary. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. These divine abodes, of all of them, compassion is most like this vipassana or insight ability to be able to come close to what's happening without flinching, without striking out if it's really hard to take, 
without closing down, without turning away, but just to be there with it. This is the quality of compassion. There's a phrase that we use in the compassion practice. <clears throat> the, the traditional phrase is, may I or you be free from your pain and sorrow. But there, there's a phrase sometimes people use that's um, more directly helpful for them, and that is, I care about this pain or I care about your pain. Well, in compassion practice, when we're actually doing it, the trick is to have our energy centered in the caring part, in the part that's able to open our hearts and not drowning in the pain part. So oftentimes when we open to the pain, this is what happens. We drown in the pain. We get lost in the pain. But that's not the object of compassion. That's not the aim. The aim is to keep our hearts so open and in balance that we can be there with it. We don't have to get stuck in it. We don't have to get lost in it. So this is the near enemy of compassion, when we get lost, when we drown in it. It seems like compassion. That's why they call it the near enemy. It can seem like compassion, but it's really, in the Buddhist teaching, they call it grief. It's this unhealthy kind of grief, the kind of grief where there might be an element of pity for another person or self-pity, where we just are so lost, our strength is lost, that there's no more strength to help ourselves. There's not enough strength, obviously, to help anybody else. So what happens here is that we drown or we're we're kind of smothered in it. We're not strong in it. <clears throat> in the text, they describe this as uh, going into quicksand to help somebody, but kind of getting caught in the quicksand ourselves and not being wise enough to know how to get the other one out, just kind of jumping in to the mire ourselves. There's a a balance that we need here, the balance of knowing what to do, knowing how close to get sometimes also, knowing where to help if our compassion is directed to the world, a balance of compassion and wisdom that need to come together. There's a lovely story uh, that's told by Mahagosananda, the Cambodian monk that's like the Bodhisattva of Cambodia, like the Dalai Lama is uh, of Tibet. And this is sometimes uh, descriptive of what we do when we want to save the world or save others, and we don't really have the balance of wisdom. So he says here, the balance of wisdom and compassion is called the middle path. This is a story about an old farmer who found a dying cobra in his rice field. Seeing the cobra suffering, the farmer was filled with compassion. He picked up the snake and carried him home. Then he fed the cobra warm milk, and he wrapped the cobra in a soft blanket, and lovingly he placed the snake beside him in his bed as he went to sleep. In the morning, the farmer was dead. 
It's just not enough wisdom. <laughs> Sometimes we go to places where, <laughs> you know, we're trying to help, but I mean, we just get overwhelmed ourselves. And have you ever found yourself in that situation? I certainly have. Just not too long ago, um, almost in the quicksand myself, one of my daughters was undergoing some surgery. She found out that she had, um, and she's given me permission to say, cervical cancer. And this was at a place where it could be dangerous, and she wanted me to be there with her. So I actually left her retreat and was with her in the hospital through this. And this is the first time that anything like this has struck our family where this, you know, with a child, of course, she's 33, 34 at the time, um, it's so close, you know, this kind of death can be so close from someone like a child, with someone like a child. And so as she was going through this, it was very difficult for her. She needed a lot of help, and I was by her side all this time. And there was a time when I felt like I was really going under. I was really sinking, that I didn't have a lot of balance on the side, just helping her, being with her, doing whatever I could. And when she saw it from her, from her bed, she said, Mom, don't come here. I need you to be there in a place of like balance. Don't come here with me because I'm not strong enough. I need you to be in a place of strength. And it really woke me up to like, I, I was getting kind of overcome by grief. <clears throat> I just had it too close. It was getting to a point where I felt like I was being poisoned by it, but I, I really wasn't that cognizant of it. So it took the balance of understanding, the balance of wisdom, and then I had more energy to be courageous with her, next to her, helping her. I'll always remember at a retreat, uh, a large retreat that I was teaching at, a very fine lady was just diagnosed with a health challenge. And the prognosis was that she had just a few months. And she decided to come to this retreat. And she knew that she was going to the doctor and going to get a prognosis. And she had told me that she knew she had a feeling that it might not be good. And so she got the prognosis of a few months to live, and she came to the retreat. And I was reading her um, registration form just before she came in for interview. And she said on her registration form, and this is almost word for word, this should not interfere. She told me about the prognosis, us about the prognosis. And she said, this should not interfere with my practice that she had that prognosis. Her courage and her her tenderness brought a lot of inspiration to all of us who knew about it in the retreat. And certainly she had, at that time at least, that kind of balance of being able to bring the wisdom of, okay, what can I do about this? What can I bring to this instead of drowning in sorrow, instead of drowning in in grief 
about it. Contacting that wisdom. And sometimes I think that um, if we could approach life like this all the time, as if we knew we were going to die the next day, this would be very good for us, or in a few months, that maybe we could bring a greater courage to the moment if we truly knew this. So this is what we need to evolve as a human being, this compassion, this ability to be courageous with our life, with what's going on, the unfolding conditions of the world. Karuna, I just um, gave you a description of compassion, which is called karuna in Pali. I just say that word because you may hear it a lot more as you go on in your practice, karuna. The trembling, quivering, opening, tenderness of the heart in response to pain. It's what allows us to take a closer look, this ability to say, okay, I can be alive here, not dead, not numb. Sometimes we just even have to face the numbness. It takes courage to face the numbness and to be alive with that, to take a closer look and to be able to say, I'm not going to get distracted from this. I'm going to face this, to face it in ourselves, this life of sickness, old age and death, these kinds of dukkha, these kinds of suffering that we face, just as I am bound to sickness, old age, and death, so are all beings. Or sometimes, for some people, it comes the other way around. We realize first, oh, just as beings are dying, getting sick, aging, so am I. One side or the other opens us to this universality this universal truth. When that happens, when we open to that, the universal truth of sickness, old age, dying, these kinds of suffering, a kind of humbling arises in us. That's necessary. Not just a tenderness of heart, but a kind of humbling. Because sometimes we're too proud to face it. We're too busy with our lives trying to do something for everybody else, maybe. And a kind of tenderness arises too. A softening allows us to face it. Little things open us to this more and more every day. It, it, it doesn't take a big Dharma talk or a nine-day or a three-month retreat. It, it can take little openings to nature sometimes, or somebody around us having something going on with them. Um, when I was in Burma just this last time, by the way, I'm, I'm really convinced now that Burma is not ruled by the military. It's ruled by insects. <clears throat> there are there's so many. It's just so incredible that... So this time, last, the last time I was there before, this last January, it was the big, hairy, yellow um, uh, bees, you know, and wasps. And this time, it's the big black ants. 
So I became aware through the precepts, especially too, of not harming. We take that precept every day, just as you do, that, you know, we, we don't step on things that we might kill. So you're very alert to when you're walking. And in that area of Burma, there are these huge, black, vigorous ants that, you know, they're very strong and they're very busy walking and running here and there and doing their business and going in and out of these holes and looking for food. And in the hall, in the Dhamma hall, every so often we have to take up our, uh, our mat and we have to sweep because there are these black ants that come to scout. Is there any food here? You know, and we kind of have to sweep away their lines that their scouts make. So one day I, um, I tracked in some sticky stuff in my little hut, in my kuti. And uh, so it was on the floor. And so I saw this, this stuff kind of moving around. I had this dark wooden floor in this hut I had. And I saw this, this white stuff kind of moving around. I tracked in kind of a piece of Kleenex or something that had some sticky stuff on it. And so I th- thought, what is this? It, the, the floor is moving. And this, this whole section of the floor was just going like this with this white stuff. So I got my glasses on and I got closer. And it was a swarm of these black ants moving around in, you know, in this... It was like scary. It was like the fly, but it was like, you know, that movie, but it was like the ants. And so the ants, the ants. And so I, so I got the broom and I was just sweeping it away and finally got it all cleaned up. And then from that day, which was kind of like the beginning of the retreat for me, I was really, my heart was closed down. I was kind of fearful and the ants gave me the heebie-jeebies, you know. I just didn't want to be around them, and it was like that. Ooh. And so it was going on like that, going on like that, and then felt close, and of course, I didn't like these ants. You know, I wish they wouldn't be there, but like Manindra said, you don't rule the world, he said. <laughs> he told me one time. <laughs> when I was talking to him about insects, and so I remembered that that's true. These insects rule the world. So one time I was walking very slowly to the meditation hall from my kuti and just, you know, looking down as you, you know, guarding your sense doors. And I saw all these fast-moving ants. And then I saw this one ant that was going really slowly. And not just going really slowly, but like going slowly and then kind of going like that and then doing a few little, and then going like that. And so I looked really close, and that ant was like, that ant was a big teaching to me. It was like, in, the, in that one second, in that one moment, it was like sickness, old age, and death affect all beings. And I never thought about it for ants, you know, all these vigorous things moving around. But even that little tiny ant, even in this little insect kingdom. And I I took the time to come close to actually watch that ant. And I didn't know what was happening to it. For all I know, it gotten some of my cough syrup and was, you know, a little bit. (laughs) But it it truly had some... 
signs of not being well, of being old. You know, I was feeling arthritic pains myself. And it opened me again in a different way, a different angle to the universality of this truth of suffering. That being also wants to be happy, just like I do. That being also wants to be free from suffering, just like I do. So very suffering and teachings of suffering come from all over. Compassion doesn't insist on laying a veneer of idealism onto this world like, this is how I think it should be. Compassion is like, accepts what's there. It says, this is how it is, and asks us, can I face it? Can I face how it is? Sometimes, of course, the unfolding conditions of this world or the unfolding conditions of our hearts can be way too much for us to bear. It's really true. I mean, we, we've all seen in one way or another what happened a couple of years ago in New York and really what's happening every day in different parts of the world. It's hard really to bear what to do about it. Well, facing suffering is important, but also being able to reflect on the tremendous basic goodness of humanity is important. When it gets too much to bear, we really need to turn our hearts to the basic goodness of humanity. And this is where our metta practice helps, where we're tuning in to our own sense of care and welfare for other beings. And maybe during that time, we also tune in to their care, their highest potential, their goodness. So this is why it's so important to do the metta practice, so that we're always tuning into that. It's healthy to do that. It's healthy to also reflect that in our own lifetimes alone, we've had tremendous bodhisattvas, great people, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, the Dalai Lama, Mahakosananda, and obviously our own teachers near us. Living in the time of the Buddha Sasana, the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of Jesus, of St. Francis, for example, they're still alive. Trungpa said, You have to be able to hold the pain of samsara in your heart, but never forget the great eastern sun, meaning to say the goodness of the world. Never forget that. And then he says, you can make a proper cup of tea. That's part of the balance too, the balance of wisdom and compassion, not just drowning in the grief. And when we do, can we turn towards facing the goodness. When we can't seem to muster up compassion for ourselves or feel it anywhere around, then I remember that those great beings are around. The teachings we receive receive on the Four Noble Truths, the Five Hindrances, uh, Right Effort, the Brahma Viharas, 
these are all areas of nobility, of greatness. It's important to have that balance there. We're all riding on a great wave of compassion. These teachings come to us from uh, so far away, so long ago. We're riding on compassion, really. The compassion that the Buddha had to offer the teachings, the compassion that Jesus had to offer his love over and over and over again. There's an ancient Native American saying that goes, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm riding on a great wind across the sky. This is the great wind we're all riding on, this one of compassion. Can we truly realize this? Where would we be without, like, for example, Manindra? I like to mention him because he's so close to me. Manindra, I used to say, and many of us used to say, I want to understand life. I want to understand what this is all about. I want to understand my mind. And he would just say so directly, if you want to understand your mind, just sit down and look at it. That's the way to do it. So in our practice of bringing compassion to our experience, we may get lost in what is called the near enemy, grief. What's necessary here is to notice that it's happening. Whenever we're facing suffering in ourselves or another, notice that it's happening. Recognize. This is the first antidote. Recognize. Be mindful that it's happening. And sometimes in that very recognition, it can bring us back to the middle path. That recognition is wisdom. Sometimes we get lost in what is called the far enemy. The far enemy is cruelty. Far enemy is called the far enemy because we recognize it from afar. This is the far enemy of compassion, cruelty. It's hatred in action and in speech and sometimes in emotion when it's really strong. We feel it from ourselves, from others. It's a striking out, causing more pain in the world. So we may want to, we may have compassion for what's going on in the world, but because we don't have enough wisdom, we strike out with more pain, and it adds more layers. We strike out in the form of bodily aggression, in the form of aggressive or hurtful speech, in the form of Um, anger, blame. Maybe it's not outwardly and we're not actually hurting others by anger, blame, because it's just within us, but we're hurting ourselves. And people can feel it. The one thing about bringing compassion to those places in ourselves where we can acknowledge, yes, this is cruelty, when we just feel the anger and blame in ourselves towards others, towards ourselves. In a way, when we bring mindfulness, true mindfulness and compassion here, this is a healthy thing because we begin to understand this is what it is to be a human being. 
this is how it is. We're honest. We're, we're not hiding from it. We're not, it's not locked away in the closet. And when we can see it in ourselves, then we can understand it in others. And we're less likely to point a finger and say, that's wrong. Because we can say, uh, we might say that's wrong, but we, we don't say, you're a bad person and I hate you. Maybe we can say, that's wrong and need to bring compassion here. It's the very place we need to bring compassion to the perpetrators of hatred, of cruelty in the world. The very place we need to bring compassion. That's in the world, but in our practice, when we're doing our practice here, a lot of times it comes up in ourselves. We feel whatever it is, you know, some, something happens and right away the, the scorpion sting goes out, even if it's not through bodily action or speech. It's, we feel it and we recognize it. So what to do there? What can we do? We can bring a kind attentiveness to it. Know it for what it is. Be open to it. Come close to it. Be balanced with it as much as we can. Give it some space. And be careful not to add another layer of guilt. Not to add another layer of, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. But just be able to say, this is how it is. This is how it is in this moment. The this it this is how it isness is equanimity. We need a lot of equanimity to be compassionate. Compassion can't be true compassion unless there is that equanimity, because equanimity, which you know we will learn and understand about at other times, or maybe you have a great understanding about it now. Equanimity is that ability to be balanced, open, spacious, and kind at the same time. To be able to bring our attention near, we need equanimity. To bring a steadiness of mind. Sometimes, uh, for me, when I've noticed that it's been really, really difficult and I need to back off, I'll do little things to help me have more space I'll ask myself, how can I have more space around this? So in practice, what kind of things can we do? Um, just recently, you know, the, the schedule I had when I was in Asia is that you wake up really early and the first sitting is at 4 o'clock and so the bell is at 3 o'clock and this is what you're expected to do the first day and you, you practice, uh, they say, you know, till 11 from 9 to 11 in your room, and the last sitting is 8 to 9. Well, there were times when I was really, really tired, and I just, my back was aching, my hip was aching, and I, I really, it was hard for me to take that schedule, even though I'd been, I had done it before. Well, I do little things like I take a little longer to bow. You know, in the bowing that we do here, um, usually we're taking refuge in the Buddha, the first bow, and the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. So I would 
take refuge in the Buddha, and I'd stay there for like a minute. (laughs) It was so nice to stretch the back, be really thankful for that, and the same with the Dhamma, and the same with the Sangha. And sometimes in the walking period, which they required you to do, you know, you couldn't go back to your room. If you were ill, you could only go to the clinic if you were ill. And then the doctor would take care of you in the clinic. No going back to your room. So you had to stay up with, stay with the schedule. So if I needed to take some space, I'd go to the walking area where they had this kind of reservoir lake, and I'd do my walking there. And at the end of the long uh, walking place, I would just stand there and look at the lake. And I'd notice seeing, 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 like for a minute, and just be there with it, and just relax the mind, being outside. So there, there are little ways that you can give yourself space, and this is compassion for yourself. Sometimes, uh, one time I, was, I went to um, an interview, and I, there was so much suffering that one of the translators, Uni Anaponika, he's a monk, he got up from his seat and he said, there's so much suffering in the world, there's so much suffering in the world, and um, I guess they didn't know what to do or what to say. And anyway, what I got back in the translation is, when you don't know what to do uh, in, in the walking, because I was saying it was difficult in the walking, just bend over and take your socks, pull up your socks, and begin again. And so, I took that, okay, that's from the masters, okay, I'm going to go out and that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I do. And even in Asia, I wear socks now because of all the bugs, you know, the mosquitoes. So I just, when it got too hard, I would just take a little break and I'd bend down, pull up my socks, get up mindfully and just begin again. These are the little compassionate things that you can do for yourself. The Dalai Lama says, until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So, isn't this true? Haven't we at all, all of us at times, looked at something and saying, oh, why why are they suffering so much? I mean, you know, what's that all about? I'm really grateful for times when that has happened to me, when I've not understood why a person has been not brave enough or not um, whatever enough. And then I go through something similar, and then I see, now I understand. Many of us, probably most of us, have family. All of us have family. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, siblings, um, children, grandchildren. And we know when they go through something difficult, our animal friends, our family animal friends, that it's, it's really, really a test for us to open our compassion and be really, really strong. To do what we can do to give everything that we have to the situation, but also to be able to surrender and say, this is how it is. There is sickness, even in youth. There is 
uh, old age, there is death. To be able to face that and let go. A lot of our practice has to do with facing this over and over and over again. How many times have we faced it in our children? How many times have now I have grandchildren? And um, I'm seeing it in a different way. You know, I'm seeing the fear I have around the suffering my own children have with their children. And just sort of my heart opening to them. And part of my, you know, part of me says, mm-hmm, karma. And, <laughs> and part of me says, oh, I know how that feels. And to give, to give all the guidance and advice I possibly can and to say, look, I know how it was, at least from my own little experience when I went through that with you guys. And this is what you can do and then seeing them do whatever else or not take the advice or know that it's going to, you know, be a brick wall or, you know, say, you know what, there's a waterfall down this river. I really know that for sure. And they say, oh, mom, never mind, you know, you're just a worry wart. And then they go over that waterfall, the kids or the grandkids. And it's, it's you know, it's okay, they recover, but I have to be able to have compassion, open my heart, give my advice, and then let go. I can't hold on to, like, they're going to take the advice, or they're going to live through it, or they're going to be okay. They might not be okay. They might not. Can that be okay with me? Can I open my heart to that? That takes a lot of compassion, a lot of equanimity. So I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And I'm grateful for that learning. I feel the heart stronger and stronger for that. My heart keeps breaking and I keep finding that it's stronger around where it's broken. It's where we're under the greatest adversity that there exists the greatest potential to be compassionate with ourselves and others and also to be free. It's compassion which allows us to come close, to remain there steadily, and not just to come close, but to be able to relax around the suffering, to not take it so personally, to see the universality of it. This is the benefit of compassion. This is a poem I read over and over again, and I never get tired of it. I hope you don't. It's really, it's a poem entitled Kindness, And it's really about compassion, that kind of kindness that's facing suffering, which is compassion. The poet is Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in weakened broth, 
What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know what kindness is, that kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know what sorrow is as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of the cloth, how big it is. Then it is only kindness that makes sense, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to do your errands, mail letters, purchase bread, and only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow, like a friend. So let's sit for a moment. May our hearts connect with that noble energy that's inherent in every one of us as human beings, that courage, that strength, that kindness of compassion. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.